like to know the Bible more. But what's the best way to start? Should I start at the beginning or is it better to jump around? Find out what I need as needed. And speaking of the Bible, how do I know which version of the Bible to read, to study? We used to have one version, now we got a bunch. How do I sort all that out? And sometimes people ask, what do you think is the most important scripture in the Bible for us to study? Well, we're going to take a different approach to our program today. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're going to answer some questions like those that I just posed, and we're going to do that just by having a conversation. Well, uh, maybe you'll talk back to the radio as you listen. That's okay. Uh, and I realize that we can't actually converse, but I want to talk about these questions that people ask, and we're going to do that through the lens of the Bible and our understanding of things, and with the assumption that God really wants to help us answer many of the questions we ask. God doesn't answer every question. He doesn't answer the why question often. Why did this happen or why did that happen? In those cases, he expects us to trust him, and we can, because that's what faith is. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we approach our understanding of God, our faithfulness to God through the lens of we really can understand what's going on. We can understand what God wants us to understand. It'll be sufficient for us to live the lives God intends for us to live. And, and we'll not only get through this, but we will live in a way God always hoped that we could live and a way to honor him and to have a life that's been worth living. So faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I'm Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. And I try to answer these questions not as a, as a scholar. I don't know that I would consider myself a scholar. I study and try to understand there are other people far more scholarly than I will ever be. But I try to be thoughtful about that. I try to think about these things through the, the lens of a pastor and how to help people who are living their lives understand what God wants them to understand. How can we approach these things? And so we want to ask some questions and answer them today with, with that framework. Now, this idea came up several years ago at our church, and, and so we've been doing it for a while now. And one of our ladies suggested to me one time, had I ever thought about having an instant sermon Sunday? Well, I wasn't real sure what that meant, but it sounded intriguing. And, and she explained that she had seen that another church on the fifth Sunday of the month, that happens four times a year, every time there's a month with five Sundays, they would have instant sermon Sunday. And what that meant was people would bring their questions or concerns to church with them and submit them, and then the pastor would answer them, or as I like to think of it, we'd have a conversation about them. And so I thought, well, it's not a new idea for us. Other churches had been doing it. I'd sort of heard about it, but I thought, why not? Why not give it a try? So we did. And we kind of liked it. It was very insightful for me. I got to, the opportunity to hear what was on people's minds. And, and I got to think about things that I wouldn't ordinarily think about. Every time, and I always found this amusing, every time that we get ready for an instant sermon Sunday, I, I kind of prepare. I think about, well, what, what might people ask this week? Because I look around at what's going on in the, in the world around us, what's in the news, what are the moral issues that are coming up. And so I tend to think about, okay, what might I need to respond to? And there hasn't been a single, not one 
not any Sunday where people have asked the questions I thought they might ask. And that's okay. I didn't mind that. I just found that kind of amusing and, and helpful because it gave me a chance to think about what other people think about because I saw their questions, their observations, and I didn't have to assume or guess or try to figure it out on my own. So we're going to try to have a version of Instant Sermon Sunday. At church, I just invite people to write their question on a, on a three-by-five card, and then we collect them during the offering time. The ushers pull out the questions and then hand them to me, and we just start the conversation. Now, I always tell people they can ask whatever question they want. I have not limited that. Uh, of course, I know, and everybody else knows, that if somebody puts a question in that I don't want to deal with, I just say, nope, not doing that one, and put it aside. But that hasn't ever happened. I, I don't think people are trying to be ornery that way or disrespectful or anything else. I also tell people that that instant sermon isn't about adding water to the preacher and stirring, because sometimes we think about instant things as being food we prepare, and we add water and presto, there it is. And I also tell people that instant sermon isn't about stump the pastor because that's way too easy. That would not be difficult at all. But what it is, it's really an attempt to have a conversation about things that are important to people, things that are on their mind, so that we can, we can help each other. And so that's what I want to do today. What I, it's difficult for me to get your questions right now, but I went back over the years we've been doing this, and I pulled out some questions that, that to me seem uh, valuable today, worthwhile to talk about today. I, I don't know if they would be the questions you would ask, but it's at least the beginning. So I thought we ought to start somewhere and uh, then we'll see how it goes. We maybe we'll do this a little more often. I don't, I don't know, but uh, might depend upon how, how helpful it is because we don't do this just for my amusement. We do this to help you. And if we can find ways to help you and to help you develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, that's what we're aiming for. We want people to trust God and to come to realize that they can trust him. So let's plunge in and I will pose the question and then I'll give you a response. It's not the response I would have given when this question was brought up in one of our services. It certainly isn't that, but it is a response for today and, and hopefully you'll find it helpful. So first question is this, and it comes up with some frequency. People ask, why are there so many different versions of the Bible? For centuries, there was one version, and we all understood it. Now it gets confusing since they all sound different. Well, that's a very good question. The, the many, many versions of the Bible, the English translations of the Bible that we have, is as the person writing the question pointed out, it's a blessing and it's a confusion. And I understand that. And, and at the same time, I approach the Bible, I hope the way you do, with the conviction that God doesn't want us to be confused. He wants us to understand. So why are there different versions? Well, <laughs> you might be surprised at this. One of the reasons is because there are different publishing companies and they all want to sell you a Bible. Now, now some people could say, well, that's pretty crass and commercialized. And I understand that. It's true that there are different publishing companies, and they do have their translations of the Bible, their English translations. And when we can't overlook that, that's that kind of goes with the territory. And it's not a bad thing, because what it can do, that competition can spur these companies that, that spend the money to develop new English translations. It, it can be competition that can lead us to a better a better product, a better translation. So we should be thankful for that and not entirely cynical. 
Now, I will agree that when we all had one version, the King James Version, there was some simplicity to that. When we looked at the Bible, when we quoted it, when we talked about it, we could all look at the same words. We could, we could all be on, shall I say, the same page together with that. And so I understand why that's beneficial. Now, the reason we needed new English translations is because the language continues to change and we needed to update the language. Sometimes the words that were used when they translated the, the King James Version have a little different meaning than the words today because word meanings change. That's not good, bad, or anything else. That's just the way it works. And so sometimes we need to update it so that we have words that we understand and, and they apply correctly. Sometimes words uh, go out of fashion, or maybe a better way to say it is that we just don't use them so much, and they become antiquated, and we don't really grasp what they're what they're about. The fact that a, a, an English word used today is different than the one used in the King James Version doesn't mean necessarily that they're changing the meaning of the Bible. It means that a faithful translator is trying to make sure they preserve the meaning of the Bible so that we can understand it. And so we have a bunch of a bunch of different translations. Part of the reason we have different ones is because there are different approaches to to the translation process. So it's not just the fact that we have competition. It's not just the fact that we have word usage change, but different approaches to translation result in different phrases being used to say the same things. Now the confusion comes when people try to compare one English version to another. And then they'll say, well, they use this word and this one uses that word. And so they've changed my Bible. I don't know of a single instance in, in the translation process, and, and I don't know all of them, So, but take that for what it's worth. I just don't know of any situations where anybody has deliberately changed the meaning of the Bible by using a different word. What they're trying to do is clarify so that we understand. And we need to be careful not to fall into the trap of, of getting caught up in those kinds of controversies, what we need to focus on is what we understand about the Bible, because what we understand about the Bible is what's important, and we understand enough to be faithful to following God. So don't let it be confusing, just use the one that you understand. Now, there are some limitations, granted, but most people don't run into those limitations. When I study the Bible, I use different English translations because it helps me sort it out, and I, and I have a great responsibility to keep the sacred story straight. So I, I check some different things. I use some, some tools that, that, that aid Bible study, that help with language understanding and explanations and things like that, and I can go deeper into, into this word or this expression. How does that fit in this cultural context? I understand all of that, and the different English translations do help us with that, but they can also be a hindrance. So I, for most people, I would encourage you to find a Bible that you understand and that you will read. That's really important. If you can't understand it, if it's too difficult to read, you won't. So find one that you're comfortable with. And it really doesn't matter what it's label is, what English translation it is, because in the, in the main, you will get the sacred story straight. So if you like, for example, the New International Version, then use it. Don't be intimidated by somebody else saying, well, I use this one. Now, maybe you like the New Revised Standard Version. Well, fine. Read that one. Use it. Let God speak to you from the pages of that Bible. Maybe you like the New Living Translation. 
Well, fine. Read that one. That's a very readable, understandable translation. I have no hesitancy to recommend that one or any of the other ones that I've just mentioned. You need to get one that you can understand. And I have, de have definitely discovered that if I get a little stuck in one Bible passage and I switch to a different English translation, it often helps my understanding get unstuck. And so you can use that. Now, some people have criticized in years past the um, English translation we call the message. Well, the more I've used the message, the more I have appreciated it for its help in understanding what God is trying to say to us. And I understand how it was approached and how it was translated. And some people say, well, it's not quite a scholarly this or careful that. That's fine. All of those criticisms I get, you get. But I have discovered that the message is very readable. It's plain language, and it helps people understand. So that's the key. If it helps you understand, you can build from there. But if you won't start someplace, you really can't. So I'm not going to go through all the possible English translations. That goes beyond this. But I do want to help you understand that, that if you pick one that you can understand, and don't worry about the confusion of comparing one against another, just read the Bible and ask God to help you understand it. Now, one other related idea on the choice of of an English translation, which version of the Bible for you to read, is you ought to consider what English translation your church uses. Now, that would be difficult for my church, Diplomat Wesleyan in Cape Coral, Florida. That would be difficult because I use a different one for a different reason, and I don't feel obligated to stick to one and only one. Some pastors do, and they do that for good reasons, and I respect that. And so you need to consider the church you attend uh, the, the pastor's viewpoint on that. If he uses a consistent English translation that he always uses every Sunday, then you might really want to seriously consider using that English translation. You also should remember that you can find samples of these Bibles. In fact, you can find the whole text of these Bibles uh, at online places. So if you do a search, you can find opportunities to, to read them a little bit, maybe to read a familiar passage, see if you like it, maybe read a, a difficult section and see if that particular English translation helps you. So you can sample them before you would actually have to go out and purchase a, a Bible of your own. I do encourage you to have a physical Bible. I just think that makes a lot of sense, but I understand why people like to have um, electronic versions. I use those all the time as well. So maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. Um, I hope it'll help you sort that out. If you can't sort it out from some of those ideas, again, talk to your pastor because it's his responsibility to help you understand the Bible. And, and, I, and I believe pastors will do that. And I want to respect that. And by the way, if you don't go to church, I want to say it again, find a church that believes in the Bible, faithfully follows what the Bible says, and be a part of that church. It's vitally important for our development of faith. To, it's vitally important to being a Christian. The Bible does not conceive any place that I have found that it's a good and proper thing for someone to follow Jesus by themselves staying at home. So find a church. You don't necessarily need to find the church that's closest to your house. Sometimes people have done that in the past. Now it's more important than ever to find a church that's closest to the Bible. Find a church that believes the Bible is the Word of God studies the Bible, tries to understand the Bible, and apply the Bible to life. It matters more than ever because we live in a time when the truth is being eroded all around us, and the Bible keeps us on track. The Bible corrects us and helps us know that which is true and right, and what we should do, and how we should live. So 
All right, that's a lot of answer for one question. Let's try another question. What do you think? Another question that sometimes people ask is, I would like to know the Bible more, but what's the best way? Start at the beginning, or is it better to jump around as needed? Well, that's a very good question, because a lot of times we pick up a book and we just start at the beginning and read to the end because it's a story. It tells us uh, the story of uh, either a person's life, if it's a biography, or maybe historical events, or maybe it's a, a novel and it's a fiction story. It just tells us a, a story the author has has created for us, and, and it's entertaining and sometimes very insightful and helpful, depending upon the author's intent and the type of literature it is. How do we understand the Bible more? How's the best way to get started? Well, one of the things we need to understand about the Bible is that it's not a story that begins at the beginning and ends at the end. Now, it's true, Genesis is the beginning of the story of God and his work with people, his creation. And it is true that Revelation talks about end times. Okay, so in that sense, the Bible does have Genesis at the beginning and Revelation at the end. I understand that. You understand that. But between those two beginning and endings are, is a lot of information and a lot of books of the Bible, and they aren't necessarily in order. They were written for other reasons. And so the Bible is really an anthology, a collection of books written by a number of authors designed to help God's people know God and follow God. So to begin at Genesis and then read straight through the way most English Bibles are ordered to Revelation can be confusing and may not help you understand the story that God is trying to help you understand and be a part of. So there's a couple things to think about with that. First of all, this, the, the Bible story is completed in the person and work of Jesus. So Jesus is the focal point of the Bible and its story because he's the one that came to take the sin of the world on himself, to die for our sins, and to make salvation possible. So Jesus really is the central figure in all of the Bible, the Old Testament pointing toward his coming, and then the New Testament church living out the impact, the importance of his coming, and what that means for us. And we're still living that out today. So if you do not understand very well or, or feel like you have a limited understanding of Jesus, then I want to encourage you to start with the Gospel of Mark. Now, a lot of people will pick a different Gospel. I, I get that. In fact, I'm the only person I know that recommends starting with Mark. Uh, hello, I have to be different, right? Well, I don't do that to be different. I do that because, for a couple of reasons. One, it really is a story of Jesus. Two, it's not very long, and if people get discouraged or intimidated by a long book of the Bible, Mark shouldn't do that. It has readable chapters, and it unfolds the story of Jesus as Mark tells it. And I think you can benefit a lot from it. There's a lot of action in the, in the book of Mark. It goes from one instant to another quickly, and it's just a great introduction to Jesus, who he is, what he did. A lot of key and important things happening in the life of Jesus are told by Mark, and, and we can get it. We can understand it. There will be things that you will read when you read Mark that you'll say, whoa, I don't understand that, or I don't know why that's important, or what's that mean? That, that's the nature of getting acquainted with the Bible. But read the Gospel of Mark to understand the story of Jesus, and if it's your first exposure to that approach, read it again. 
it's not impossible to read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. Just sit down and, and determine you're going to take the time and you're going to read it. Now, see, that's why it's important to choose an English Bible that you will read and understand. But go through it from the beginning to the end of the Gospel of Mark. There's nothing like reading the whole story of Jesus in one sitting. Now, I should also quickly say that if, if reading is challenging for you, do not hesitate. Do not shrink from this idea at all. It is completely valid. Find a recorded version of the Bible, an audio version of the Bible, and listen to the Gospel of Mark. There are a number of good ones out there, and, and you just find one that, that you can find listenable, and listen to that. Listen to it while you're in the car, listen to it whenever you're doing odd jobs, wherever you have the opportunity, listen to the Gospel of Mark, and just let it, let it uh, become part of your understanding. When you finish it, listen again, then listen again. Uh, maybe after you've listened, you'll want to go read it. Those are the ways that you kind of let the gospel kind of sink in and get familiar with the story of Jesus. That's really important. So that's a beginning step on that, and it's a very good way to get acquainted with the story of Jesus. Now, if you would like, and I really encourage this, if you would like to get acquainted with the whole story of the Bible, because really the Bible, while it's a collection of individual books, is a story of, of God beginning at the beginning, creating the heavens and the earth, creating people, creating all that we see around us, plants, animals, all of the things. God started at the beginning with creation, and then it leads all the way through to the, to the end of time when, when God makes all the wrong things right. That's going to be quite a day, by the way, but that's a different subject and a different story. But if you want to understand the scope of God's work with people, then I want to recommend that you go out and find a book called, not very creatively, but very accurately, The Story. There is a publication that some people put together called The Story, The Bible as One Continuing Story of God and His People. I think it comes in a couple of English translations. The one I'm familiar with is the New International Version. It may come in a King James Version or New King James Version. I can't remember that right now. But this is really excellent. And I want to encourage you, if you want to understand the story of the Bible from beginning to end, this is a great way to do it. And, and it's, it's very readable. The New International Version is very readable. It reads like a story. It starts at the beginning. Oh, some people say, well, but it leaves out some things that are in the Bible. Granted, it does, because its point is to tell you the story that God wants you to understand, not to give you all of the related details and supporting information. It, it's not damaging to the Bible. It's not harmful to the Bible. I know some people get upset. Well, you can't leave things out of the Bible. No, you can't. The Bible is given to us so that we will have the whole understanding of God, and we will follow God based upon that. That's important, and, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But what we need to understand is that God wants us to, to also grasp how he has worked from the beginning of creation to the end of time, and that's what the story does. It gives us that viewpoint, and that's valuable and helpful, and I think you should, should really consider reading that, even if you're fairly familiar with the story of, of how God has, has worked in our world. This will give you a lot of new insights into that. And, and maybe the most um, unusual thing that I would recommend is there are some excellent Bibles for children that 
introduce this Bible stories, and they begin at the beginning and tell the story of God all the way through. Now, people say, well, I'm a grown-up. Should I read a children's Bible story book? Why, sure. Why not? It's not the detail that the Bible goes into, but it will introduce you to the story and begin to help you understand the scope of what, what God has been doing. There are some that are written for adults. There are some, uh, I call them comic book Bibles. They, they're written in comic book fashion. You can look and find those out there, and those can be helpful. Some of them are very interesting, very different artwork, but they tell the story of what God has been doing in a way that helps people grasp the whole big picture of the Bible. Uh, I like the, the this idea of a comic book Bible, I sometimes call it. My son, when he was little, we got him one of those Bibles for Christmas, and uh, I, I thought it was kind of cool. I didn't know what he would think about it, but it didn't matter what he would think about it. I thought it was important for him to have it, and my wife did too, so so we bought him that Bible, and I, I, I will never forget. It was just the most remarkable thing. Um, on Christmas Day, we were at my wife's parents' home in Michigan. On Christmas Day, he got that Bible as one of his presents, and at some point after he had opened all of the things, he wanted to read that Bible. And so we sat down and we started reading the Bible. And I can remember he just wanted to keep going and going and going. He was fascinated by that. He didn't want to quit with the story. And I remember that so well, thinking that's exactly the way so many of us need to approach the Bible so that we can, we can understand the story of God and we can find a way to, to get acquainted with what God is telling us. The Bible stories really, really are helpful for that, and I want to encourage you to, to consider any of those ideas that I just mentioned as the best way to get started in knowing the story of God. Now, a related question that I get sometimes, and so let's just, let's just throw that one in here too, is this. What do you think is the most important scripture in the Bible for us to study? Well, I always love those kinds of questions because did you notice how it started? What do you think? Well, whenever somebody asks me what I think, then I know I can't give a wrong answer because they just want to know what I think. Well, I don't know if I'll give the, a wrong answer, but I hope I give a helpful answer to that. What is the most important scripture in the Bible for us to study? Well, of course, the story of Jesus, and we talked about that, cannot be overlooked when you, when you think about what do I need to understand from the Bible. But in a, in a broader sense, here, here's what I think is so valuable for us. And, and this is what I'm afraid is missing in so many people's lives. If you're just learning about the Bible, I want to encourage you to spend most of your time reading the Bible stories. The stories like Daniel in the royal court of Babylon, and particularly Daniel in the lion's den, one of the classic stories of the Bible. Maybe you want to spend some time reading and rereading the story of David and Goliath. Maybe you've heard about those, but you don't know too much about them. Well, take some time and, and look at them more carefully. Maybe you learned them as a child, but now that you're grown up, you never really thought about going back to them. And, and there's so many Bible stories, I can't begin to name them all. That's a couple of ideas. But if, but if we will learn the stories of the Bible, here's what they do for us. And this is why I think it's so important. And, and it's, it, to me, it's more and more important all the time that we have a grasp of the Bible stories. And, and here's why. Life happens things happen, events unfold. And so many times what I have found helpful, and I think you would find helpful as well, is that when life unfolds, when events happen, when, when we need help from God, 
almost every time, the first thing I do is I try to think of, well, who in the Bible had a similar experience and how did they handle it? How did God help them? So I don't ever expect to meet a giant in the Valley of Elah like David did with the two armies facing off against each other and David going out to take on Goliath. I don't ever expect to be in that circumstance, but I can learn something about what's going on there when I know the story. And when I face a daunting challenge, perhaps we would say a Goliath in my life, I can go back and say, now, what did David do? What did David know about God? What did God help David with during that encounter with Goliath? And from that, I can begin to build my response and to develop my confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that happens over and over for me. I'm simply amazed. I, I will always be grateful for Clara Goodman, a lady who spent Sunday after Sunday teaching us kids the stories of the Bible. I can remember thinking I was way too grown up to be in Clara Goodman's class because I was older than most of the other kids. Well, that's a pretty childish understanding, isn't it? But to this day, I give thanks for Clara Goodman and her influence in my life because she taught me Bible stories, and it has been more helpful than I know how to describe. So I want to encourage you, find a way to learn the Bible stories. Using something like the story or maybe the picture Bible or what I sometimes refer to as comic book Bibles, you can find them out there. Go through and identify the stories and learn them so that you can benefit the way I have and the way God has helped me. Doesn't necessarily make my life easy. I'm not saying that. Life is tough. And, and we have to learn some resilience and we have to learn to trust God. We have to learn to have absolute confidence in, in him day by day. But knowing the Bible stories and seeing what God has done in the past is enormously helpful. Well, we're going to need to take a break here in just a moment, and we're going to go back and look at some other questions that we have and continue this idea of instant sermon and hopefully answer some more questions that may be valuable for you and hopefully will help you as you live your life. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. The America Out Loud family is comprised of patriots in the true sense of the word. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty and the Constitution to help save America for future generations to come.
AmericaOutloud.com. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Welcome back. You're listening to Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. And on Faith Is, we try to help each other develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because that's what faith is. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. You know, we really can trust Him, and we want to help each other develop that kind of confidence, that kind of trust in God. And today we've been taking a different approach to, to the program than what we have before, because we're, we're kind of imitating what we do at our church, and we call it instant sermon. It's where people submit their thoughts or questions about life or the Bible, and we have a conversation about them. And so what I've done is I've chosen some questions, and we're having a little bit of a admittedly one-sided conversation. We can have a little dialogue at church. We can't do that here. But this is our way to, to try to introduce that idea, and hopefully you'll find some value in this. What I've done is chosen some questions that have been asked over time that I thought might be helpful for today, and, and then we're going to talk about those and try to help bring some clarity to them and help you as you develop confidence in God, as you understand that God really is worthy of our trust. So we've talked about the Bible and approach to the Bible, and and another question that comes up from time to time, this question actually seemed to be asked much more some years ago than it is now, but it's still important. The question is simple. How will I know when God wants me to do something? Well, that's, that's pretty good. I think even asking the question means you must suspect that God wants you to do something. Yes? No? Maybe? Well, I... I am convinced that God wants you to do something. Even more than that, the Bible teaches that God has uniquely given you a gift that will help you do something important for God. And we need to discover that gift, we need to develop that gift, and we need to use that gift. And that's how I think we know. In fact, that's how I'm convinced. That's how, that's how I have made my life decisions, because I'm convinced that God has led me to do what I do, to do what I've done, because of the gifts He's given me. And God gives us these gifts, the gifts of grace, so that we 
can then make a valuable contribution to the kingdom of God, or specifically, it talks about the church in the New Testament. And so how can I know what God wants me to do? Well, you, you begin to, to learn, and you ask God to help you identify what is the gift, the spiritual gift he's given you. Now, don't, don't hear that term spiritual gift and go off on some tangent. Focus on what that term means and how it is used in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Because in those passages of the Bible, it teaches us what God means when he uses this term spiritual gifts, or sometimes you will hear them called gifts of grace or grace gifts. And if God has given you a gift, and it says this plainly in the Bible, go read it, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, read those passages, and it says very, very clearly, if God has given you this gift, then use it. So what's important for us is to identify what gift has God given us. And when we identify that, then we use that intentionally to help the kingdom of God to serve in our church, to serve our communities. So my admonition to you is go read those passages, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, read the gifts of the, the list of gifts there. That, that's not considered a comprehensive list in any single one of those, or even the combination of all of those. And, and ask God, pray about it, ask him, what is the gift that you've given me? Now, remember, if God has given you a gift, and he has, that's what the Bible says. So, so, so don't make the mistake of saying, well, God hasn't given me a gift because that's baloney. Or sometimes I say it a little more strongly. Are you ready? That's a lie from the pit of hell, and it smells like smoke. That's a phrase I borrowed from a friend of mine who I've never met, but would like to meet. And, and he and I would disagree on a lot of stuff, but I like him a lot. And uh, one day we'll sit down in heaven, and, and he'll straighten me out, and I'll straighten him out. And if you believe that, then you understand what I'm talking about here. We can differ on a lot of things but we can focus on the center of following Jesus. And it is absolutely a lie if you assume you don't have a gift, because you need to assume that as a follower of Jesus, as a recipient of the Holy Spirit, you have a gift that God wants you to use in the church. So go identify that gift and start using it. I don't know what yours is. Couldn't begin to guess. There are all kinds of different gifts mentioned in the Bible, and where God has helped people have a unique ability to help some people. It happened in our church on Sunday that some people came and they needed some special attention for a challenge in their life. They needed someone to pray for them. And, and guess what? This person didn't ask for the pastor to pray for them. Now, the person, their friend that talked to them said, well, we can ask the pastor, he'll pray for you. And they said, no, I want you to pray for me. And I thought that was absolutely terrific because I know the person that was praying and I know what God is doing in that person's life. And that was a beautiful expression of how the church helps people. And that was so valuable and so, so much a blessing to me. So find out what God is, what God is doing and, and then develop it. You might not be real good at it at first, or you might get on the wrong track. Well, that's what we correct each other for. And so once you get to 
discovering and developing and then using, you will discover that there's a real joy in doing that because you will have the sense that God is helping you and you can't imagine not doing that. And you can't imagine doing something that God isn't helping you do because that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Well, speaking of the church and, and its function in the church, and that that story is really valuable to me to about that person that, that asked for prayer and the person that prayed for them. And, and by the way, after that prayer, they didn't come to me and said, will you pray too? Nope, not at all. That was fine. God had met them and that happened. And that's the value of the church. So another question that some people ask sometimes is, and this was specific to our church, they said this, I'm so thankful for God, our Father, Jesus, this church, and his people. Even so, sometimes I feel my faith fading. I pray often to God to help my unbelief. What else can I do? Well, there's a lot in that question, and there's a lot that we could say to answer that. Uh, I read recently, uh, somebody asked a question and, and somebody responded. That the question was, how can I grow my faith stronger? And, you know, people think about that. And that's part of what this question is asking. Uh, how can I have stronger faith? Because sometimes I feel my faith fading. And I was really intrigued by the answer this person gave. And, and I thought, yeah, it's more true than we want it to be. But this person said, if you want to have stronger faith, place, face harder challenges. And I went, oh, but they're right. Every challenge in life is an opportunity for us to grow our faith, to strengthen our faith, and to reaffirm that we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. God has promised he won't leave us. He won't forsake us. God has promised, even if the whole world is shaken, that he is still God and nothing, nothing diminishes him. And one day, no matter what happens, no matter if the worst thing you and I can imagine happens, no matter what, one day God is going to make the wrong things right, and we can trust him. So when you face a difficulty, maybe you'd want to remember that, that we strengthen our faith by the challenges we face. And often I have thought in my life, and I can't say that I always do this that well, but I, I'm growing too, that I think, you know, the next time I face this kind of a challenge, I want to do better because I wasn't particularly happy with the way I responded the first time. And sure enough, I often get a second chance. And sure enough, I think I've done better the next time, but then I'm also reminded I need to do better the next time because it's a, it's a continual development of growing our faith. Now, the other thing that this person said in the, in the kind of setting up their questions, they said this, I'm so thankful for God, our father, Jesus, this church and its people. Well, another way that people strengthen their confidence in, in God, their faith in God is through the church. It's through the people of God. And we sometimes overlook that. And I want to encourage you not to overlook that at all, because we gain strength from the support and the encouragement of other people. And that, that is a vital part of living the Christian life. I said before, I'll say it again, that the New Testament, the Old Testament, nowhere in the Bible does it imagine following God without being part of the people of God. And so we need to find that church, be a part of it, and we need to, to strengthen the people around us. And when we need help, we need to let them strengthen us. When we need to lean on their faith, we lean on their faith. When they need to lean on ours, we, we prop up their faith. That's how we go forward. And that's how we become the people God has created us to become. 
that's why the church matters. That's what concerns me so much when people want to discount the church, criticize the church, complain about the church. The church has more faults than any of us can name. I know that I've had experiences that you will never have. You may have had experiences that I will never have, but that is not a reason to give up on the church. That is just a recognition that we all need to be strengthened by following Jesus. And we all need the church, the people of God to help us. So don't be dismayed. Just let the church keep correcting itself. Hang in there. Don't give up. Find a church that believes the Bible. Find a church that's closest to the Bible, where you can be a part, where you can do what God wants you to do because you've discovered, developed, and used the gifts of grace God has given you, and you can make a difference. And, and God will indeed help you have stronger faith. There is no doubt about it. Well, this next question shifts gears a little bit, and it's, it's really appropriate for our day. It's one of the reasons I chose it, but it is a question that people are asking, and, and so we need to think about that a little bit too. So let's just think out loud about this. That's what this is, you know, this instant sermon is just thinking out loud together. And so that's what we're trying to do. So here's the question. As American Christians, what should we be doing to fight the evil taking over our nation? Well, that's real interesting. And that's real insightful, that question, because it does recognize that there is a thing, a real thing called evil. And it is infecting the lives of the people all around us. At the national level, at the state level, at the local level, we can see that so much of what's going on today is clearly a battle between good and evil. Some years ago, and you and I maybe can remember that time, it's been a while, but some years ago, when we had our disagreements over public policy, this or that, it was more over well, we think it should be done this way and somebody else thinks it should be done that way. We didn't see the clarity that there was a clash between good and evil that we see now. And, and I've tested this with a few people and, and my involvement in, in public life and in trying to improve things in education and, and in other ways, I've, I've noticed increasingly people are recognizing that this is a battle between good and evil, between right and wrong. And so it's right for the person to ask the question, as Christians, what can we be doing about that? And so there are a couple of things that we should be doing. One, we need to focus on, understand, and never back down from the truth. The Bible is the truth. When God says this is the way it is, and let's just give a simple, clear example, in all the gender controversy, if you will, that's going on out there, the Bible gives clarity to that because it says, in the beginning, God created male and female, and God liked them both. But he didn't blur the lines. He didn't say, well, sometimes I'm going to make a male that should have been a female, or sometimes I'm going to make a female that should have been a male. No, God said, I created male and female. And all of the controversy over gender reminds us that there is that which is true, and that which is right. And we as Christians, if we're going to help our nation, if we're going to help the world, we have to hold fast to the truth and not give in to the lies that are being told. And there are many out there. It happens almost every day. I'll see something that I know simply isn't true that somebody is talking about. And we as Christians, that's our gift to the country. That's the church's gift 
to our country is an emphasis on, a focus on, a commitment to that which is true, that which is right. And we need to hold to the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we need to hang on to that which is true. There is truth, capital T, truth, and we need to hang on to that. That's one of the key things. If we don't know what is true, if we can't separate truth from error, if we can't separate the right from the wrong, then we can't stand up for that which is right and that which is true. So we need to understand that. And then we need to, to never give in to the lies. We just need to never participate in them, never capitulate to them, recognize that there is a truth and that must stand. So that's, that's kind of a foundational. Now, the second part of that is this. For too many years, way too many years, American Christians have said, well, we're of a different kingdom. And so we're above all of this stuff that goes on in the world around us. And, and we're going to focus on the kingdom of God and being the people of God. And, and we're not going to worry about everybody else. And I think that is, has been the gravest error the church has made to let that kind of thinking be pervasive. It has kept people from the most basic participation in public life voting because they say, why should I vote? I'm of a different kingdom. You know, I get that. We're all of a different kingdom. I get that the kingdom of God is not America. The kingdom of God is much more expansive than that. And that is our kingdom. I get that. But God has put us in this country for a reason. And God has given us this country and the gift of liberty for a reason. And that gift of liberty has allowed the church to have effective ministry, both in this country and around the world. And we should not, we should not disdain the gift of God. So when God has given us this gift of liberty, we need to preserve it because it is in part what God has used to help advance his kingdom and help fulfill the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So you and I, we need to get involved in what's going on. We need to speak up so that the people that make decisions hear from us. The other consequence of Christians withdrawing is that, that if there is no salt and light, if there's no Christian influence in the world around us and in all these issues people are so concerned about, then what influence remains? Now, now don't answer quickly, but it's a pretty obvious answer. If Christians withdraw from public conversation, let's say over the gender thing, if Christians withdraw from that and say, we're not getting into that, we don't want to be get messy and with all of that kind of stuff, we're of, of a different kingdom. If Christians withdraw from that, what influence is left? Well, obviously the influence of evil. So how can we in good conscience allow evil full reign and not stand up and push back against evil? Isn't that what the gospel is about, is overcoming evil with good? Of course it is. And so we need to be involved in that and not back down. If Christians, and this is kind of a bold statement, but I'm convinced if Christians had been properly engaged we would have never had legal abortion in this country. But we have it. And some of it, some of the reason, some of the responsibility has to fall on the church because we were silent and we did not engage. We did not see what was happening and we did not push back. And the result has been devastation for, for millions of, of babies. And we need to make sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen again. We need to actively be a part of what's going on.
Another question related to that one that, that comes up from time to time. What is the difference between the community sharing of the early church and today's socialism ideas? Well, there's a big battle between the ideas of liberty and the ideas of socialism today. It takes a lot of expressions. There are a lot of different names attached to it. It all comes back to the same idea of socialism that ultimately would lead to communism. So let's think about that. What's the difference? Because we look in the New Testament and we see that, that people shared with each other. They helped each other. If somebody needed something, their neighbor gave it to them and helped them out because that's what they did. They were good neighbors to each other. So what's going on today and what's the difference between what the church did and, and today's concept that's described as American socialism? Well, I remember very clearly we had an event at our church. It's been several years ago now. And I'm a lady from our community who they've attended our church a couple of times, but, but not regularly. They have their own, their, their own place of worship. And, and she came in and she was all concerned. And, and she came up to me and she said, uh, cause this, this idea of socialism in the church was all cropping up. And she said to me, please, please tell me that Jesus wasn't a socialist, that, that socialism isn't what the church should be about. And wow, nobody had ever asked me that question. And I was a little bit shocked. And I thought, oh boy, what am I going to say now? Because I had to have an answer. And, and in times like that, I don't always know that I have the great answer. I try to have an answer for people because that's what we do, we try to help each other. But it's as though God reminded me in that moment that there's a big difference between socialism today and what the early church did. And people miss this. So don't miss this. This is really very important. And so I said to her, no. Socialism is not a biblical idea because Jesus was never coercive. And immediately she got it. She understood that. You see, that's what people miss about socialism today. Uh, many people, they hold it up as an ideal that, that somehow everybody can have what they need and we'll all be better off and we'll all be happy and all the problems will be solved if we just embrace the socialist ideal. Well, it's really an, a utopian idea. And, and the only perfect world I know of is the one that will come when, when the Lord returns and makes all the wrong things right. Socialism today does not accomplish that ideal. And one of the things we need to remember is socialism as it's expressed today and has been for years in, in, around the world is coercive. It requires people to do things. What the early church did was not coercive. They were being friends to each other and helping each other the same way you do. If your neighbor needs something and you can provide it, you help out. When your neighbor has a crisis in their family, you help out. When somebody at church needs something, you help out. It's what we do. It's called loving your neighbor. Socialism is not about love. It's about coercion, and it's about requiring people to behave, even to think in certain ways. It is very heavy-handed, and it has never succeeded. Uh, some time ago, I read a book, and in that book, the author was arguing that socialism was not at all appropriate and would not lead to the utopian ideal so many think about. And he made the point. He said, socialism has been tried in about 70 countries around the world. Now, now make sure you hear that. Seven, zero, 70 countries around the world. And he said, it has failed in every country. And of course, we know beyond that, not only has it failed, but it has re resulted in human misery on a scale that's, that's difficult to describe. I mean, look at the countries around the world where, where tens of thousands of people have been killed. 
all in the name of a socialist ideal because they didn't measure up to what socialism required them to do, or they somehow were discovered to be a little bit lacking in the way they approached the socialist ideal. The church has a, an excellent response to that, and it's simply what Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. And that's what we need to focus on. The socialist ideal doesn't get us where we want, it, want to be. The socialist idea ultimately corrupts because of sin. And if we were perfect, we wouldn't need socialism. And uh, if, if we could perfectly implement socialism, it might be different, but that won't happen because of sin. And we need to understand that. And that's one thing the church can offer the community today is an example of loving your neighbor, reaching out to them, telling them the truth, helping them understand how to follow God, and helping them understand that socialism is ultimately coercive. And it takes and takes and it destroys and it destroys. And that's the big difference between the early church and socialism today. That's the difference from the church today. Your church, I'm sure you have people in your church that you help, and I'm sure that when you get in trouble, they help you. It's that way all the time. And that's what, that's what God had in mind. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said, love your neighbor. That's what we need to do. That's the way we give an answer to today's socialism. That's the difference. Love is not coercive. American socialism, as it's being described in the public square today, is ultimately coercive. Well, I didn't know how many questions I would need for today. I have a whole bunch more. I guess I overprepared, but I wanted to have more questions than didn't want to risk running out. And I hope those have been helpful for you. Those are some of the things that people ask. Uh, maybe we'll do this again in, in, a, in a few weeks. I, I, I'll think about that. And, and I really, the main point is not to do something different. The main point is to, to try to offer something helpful and to give us insights in how we can follow God faithfully because it really does matter. And, and really what God wants us to do is to trust him. And that's what we need to do. So maybe if God is calling you to do something and you've been reluctant, your next step in growing your faith, maybe making your faith stronger, is to do what he's been asking you to do and not hold back. Because God really wants to help us understand. He really help, wants to help us know and to follow faithfully because he really does want us to have confidence in him. He is trustworthy, and I invite you to trust him today. May God bless you, and we'll talk again next week.